Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number 52. I think the most shocking thing that I've learned is that people that are buying businesses in a box literally want everything done for them and they just want a paycheck. And that's a problem because that's not what franchising is designed to be. Welcome to a real-world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. How's it going, everybody? I am Jay Scott. I am your co-host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast here again this week with my amazing wife, Carol Scott. How's it going today, Carol? Uh, doing great and kind of settling into this new normal, right? So we just found out that the kids don't have school for the rest of the year. Expected, but it's nice to know that that's the case. And truly just grateful that we do have this time freedom and even more grateful that with this show, we have the opportunity to inspire more entrepreneurs to be able to gain that time freedom so that they can work and spend time with their family simultaneously and just, you know, hanging in there, doing the best we can all do together. Absolutely. We have a great show today. We have a woman named Laura Spalding. Uh, she started a franchise, so she basically is the franchisor of a franchise called Spalding Decon. We recorded this episode about six weeks ago, pre-pandemic, but it was actually interesting because over the past six weeks, Laura's company focuses on crime scene cleanup. So all those things you see in uh, the crime shows where the uh, the company comes in and has to clean up the, the meth labs and the blood and guts from, from crime scenes. Um, but the interesting thing is over the last six weeks, Laura and her company have gotten a tremendous amount of attention because because they have become one of the leading companies around the country to do coronavirus cleanup and disinfecting. Um, and so just tremendous amount of publicity since this episode was recorded. So we don't talk about that because this was this was recorded about six weeks ago. But keep that in mind as we go through that, that Lara's company has just, just really taken off over the last six weeks. Lara was an undercover police officer, and she parlayed the the experience and everything she learned from cleaning up meth labs or not cleaning up meth labs but busting meth labs and dealing with with crime scenes and she parlayed that into her franchise called Spalding Decon and Lara is tremendously humble basically throughout this interview she talks about all the tribulations and all of the struggles she faced growing her franchise but something to keep in mind just over the last couple of weeks 
Spalding Decon was voted one of the top 10 new franchises in the country by Entrepreneur Magazine. So while she's being humble and talking about all the struggles that that she's uh, endured while growing this franchise, keep in mind that she has been tremendously successful and we congratulate her for this recent accolade from Entrepreneur Magazine. Anyway, make sure you listen to the very end. And when I say the very end, I mean, even after the four more in this episode, because at the very end, we asked Lara about some of her favorite crime scene cleanup stories. So a little bit gruesome, but, uh, but some really good stories in there. So make sure you listen to the all the way, all the way, all the way end. If you want more information about the things we talk about, if you want more information about Lara or her franchise, make sure you check out our show notes at biggerpockets.com slash biz show 52. Again, that's biggerpockets.com slash biz show 52. Now, before we jump into our episode with Lara, let's hear a quick word from our awesome sponsor. I want to take a minute to tell you about our sponsor, Pat Live. Did you know that 76% of customers hang up if they don't reach a live person? And 85% of customers won't call back after an unanswered call. If you're a real estate investor, or if you're in any kind of service business, your livelihood depends on being able to answer every call that comes in. Pat Live offers 24-7 live answering services, so you can spend less time following up and more time growing your business. And unlike many other live answering services, they're open 365 days per year. Their friendly and professional agents are all located in the U.S. and provide all the benefits of a personal receptionist at a fraction of the cost. They offer fully customizable scripts, and they can collect leads, schedule appointments, and process orders. With Pat Live's virtual receptionists, you can turn more callers into customers. And now, for a limited time only, Pat Live is offering BiggerPockets business listeners 15% off their regular rates. This offer is only available over the phone, so give them a call now at 866-712-1879 and mention this podcast, or visit patlive.com. Make every call count with Pat Live. Thanks so much to today's sponsor. Okay, without any further ado, let's jump in with Laura Spaulding. And let's welcome Laura to the show. How are you doing today, Laura? Great. How are you guys? We are awesome. doing great. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really looking forward to the the nitty gritty, to say the least, of your very <laughs> fascinating business. I'm expecting all kinds of phenomenally gruesome stories, uh, not spoiler alert for our listeners, <laughs> but combining that with the whole business aspect is going to make for a really great show. So thanks so much for being on with us. Oh, thank you. Awesome. Okay. So we've got a lot of business stuff to talk about, but I think for your story, the backstory is kind of important, how you got to doing what you're doing. So can you take us back a little bit and talk about, so how did you get into the crime scene cleanup and decontamination business? Yeah. So it's a bit of a unique story. So all growing up, my father was in law enforcement. So I thought that that's kind of what I wanted to do. I thought it was exciting. You know, it's always on TV. It felt like a game to me, kind of catch cops and robbers, you know, type thing. So I was always kind of enamored with that. All through school, that's really kind of all I concentrated on. I got a soccer scholarship to college and then um, went in the military. And then immediately when I got out of the military, I uh, applied to basically every major city in the U.S. with a few exceptions. And I was just throwing out, you know, Atlanta, Phoenix, Detroit, you know, everywhere. And I got hired with uh, Kansas City, Missouri, 
back in uh, 1998. That's how old I am. It was my first real, real job. I had a, plenty of other jobs before that. Started working the streets and I was going to school at the University of Tennessee. So I moved from Tennessee to Kansas City, not really knowing anything about Kansas City. I had no idea how violent it was and the drug problems. And it's just a really underreported city, so to speak. So you just started off as a beat cop. Yeah, everybody starts off as a beat cop. And, you know, I went through the police academy and I had a blast in the police academy. It was six months, you know, it was physical fitness, every type of test that you could possibly get, whether it was mindset to uh, geography to physical fitness, they put you through the whole rigmarole. So I found it fascinating every aspect of it. You went to different phases. It was almost like college, but it was more concentrated with the jujitsu and, you know, all that different stuff and shooting guns and everything. So I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So when I got out of the police academy, I was working uh, patrol in the worst part of the city. They always throw the newbies in the bad parts and, you know, drug infested and whatnot. So I was probably doing it for about six to eight months and I got a request for the vice unit to work undercover. And it was kind of a moonlighting thing to work undercover prostitution. So I thought, you know, why not? It's different. And it was uh, street prostitution. So I was uh, shocked to say the least. I didn't realize how uh, naive I was until I started working street prostitution. But then I realized, you know, I, I really like the unit because it's exciting in a different level. So I decided that I was going to try to get into street narcotics and work undercover narcotics. And I really had kind of the full circle of law enforcement at that point. You know, I've worked in the street, I'm doing in crime scenes and shootings and robberies. And then I went to Vice and I, I was doing undercover prostitution, which was mind-blowing and eye-opening. And then when I was the first, you know, and only female to be in the street narcotics unit. So I was buying crack cocaine, methamphetamine, and marijuana pills, you name it, whatever was being sold on the street as a job. <laughs> this is fascinating. So you were you were full on being paid, probably a decent salary because you're in a scary part of town and so on and so forth to do all this and just learn all these behind the scenes, like underbelly of a city and all kinds of scary stuff going on. And, and that was your foray into a career, into a work life. So it doesn't sound like it was exactly what your dad had described, you know, growing up, right? Is a little bit of a difference there? You know, ironically, he had uh, come up in the same department, of course, huh. you know, 30 years prior. It's just ironic that I got hired there. So he said it was kind of always a violent city, but you really don't know all sides of the city, you know, you're really kind of, you have tunnel vision in your neighborhood or your area. When you see that, it really gives you a different perspective on people and the world and how things work and poverty. And you really see things that other people just aren't exposed to. Yeah. It's really kind of sad when I look back on it. It's not an equal opportunity. Let's just put it that way. And this is why, you know, law enforcement is mostly really jaded because they're exposed to this type of bad people, so to speak, on a daily basis. Got it. So what led to that transition into what you're doing now? Was there some defining moment? Yeah. So, you know, I'm working in the street narcotics unit and it was weird because when I was on patrol, I was being paid a shift differential so to speak. So I was working nights 
and we got what's called a shift differential. So when I transitioned over to the narcotics unit, we were working all hours, days, evenings, overnights. And I noticed on my paycheck that they took my shift differential away from me. And I thought, that's kind of odd. What's the point of that? And their response was, you're not consistently working the night shift. And I go, I'm buying drugs in the ghetto. Like there's guns to my head. I've, I was robbed. Wow. You know, I, I had a knife pulled on me, you name it. So essentially I was making less than I was when I was working patrol and it didn't make sense to me. So then I really started to think about it. And I thought, you know, I was at the time making about $40,000 a year and I couldn't work off duty because I was undercover. I couldn't blow my cover. Wow. So that was more income taken away from me. So I really had a hard look and I said, you know, this is a lot of fun, but it's, that's just what it is. It's fun. It's not long-term. I'm never going to make the money that I know I can make and I need to do something else. So I started to pay attention to like external resources. And I, you know, I started picking up a lot of real estate books. You know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad was the first book that I read. And I started thinking, okay, there's no way that I'm going to generate enough capital to start buying these properties on this crappy salary. Well, then the narcotics unit was in the same office as the SWAT team. So when we would go bust these or we would go buy this, this methamphetamine, they would go and bust them. But I noticed that they were dressed differently when they went into bust meth homes as opposed to a crack house. And I started asking questions like, hey, why are you guys all suited up with respirators and you know, bunny suits? And it looks like you know, an anthrax uh, scare. And they said, well, methamphetamine is toxic. And I said, well, what happens to the house after you bust it? And they said, I don't care. It's not our problem. So then I started looking into it and I realized Missouri was the meth capital of the United States. So there was thousands of homes that were contaminated with meth and people were unknowingly living in them and getting sick and they didn't realize why. So I started doing more research and I found in Colorado, they had some really severe strict regulations against people living in these contaminated homes. So I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to clean up crime scenes and I'm going to start cleaning up meth labs. So originally my idea was to do it as a moonlight, you know, kind of at night or after hours. So I'd go back to the street and I would do this. Well, as luck would have it, the department was like, no, you've got to really pick. It's one or the other. And I was like, yeah, okay, I quit. So I literally quit with nothing else. And I only had $2,500 in savings. And I took the training to get crime scene cleanup certified. At the time, it was in Dallas, Texas. And I flew out there and I met these two guys that I'm still friends with to this day. And I said, you know, what do you guys do for a living? And they said, well, we're nurses. We're LPNs in the Midwest. And I thought, oh, that's cool. And I said, are you business partners? And they said, yeah, we went to the bank and got an SBA loan for $150,000 to start this business. And I thought, it's that easy? So I come back from training and I go to the bank all excited and I walk in and I say, hey, I want to start my crime scene cleanup business. I want this $150,000 SBA loan. And they're like, get the hell out of here. So I was like, well, what do you mean? Well, you make 40 grand a year. So they blew me off and I went to four more banks and I got the door closed on me at every single bank. So then I got smart and creative and I decided 
I owned a home at that point and I was house hacking at the time. I didn't even know it was called that. I had a roommate because I, you know, I wasn't making any money. So I went to a different bank and I walked in and I said, Hey, I need a home equity loan because I want to get new windows on my house. Before I even left, they wrote me a check for $15,000. And that's really solidified that I was going to have difficulty when it came to funding and creating my business. Interesting. So you got your business off the ground. And so talk to us a little bit about, well, what did it take? Where did the funding come from? Uh, How did you choose the location? How did you kind of get the business started? How were you marketing for clients? So the way I started was I took the 15,000 and that's not a lot of money, you know, when you're, when you're starting a business. So I had obviously no intention of getting windows. So what I did is I bought a trailer that attached to my SUV. I was able to buy about $7,500 worth of equipment. And then I paid that $2,500 of training and the travel. So I had a little bit left. I was literally printing my own business cards. They were so stupid. The little perforated ends that, you know, you rip off. It looked terrible. And I created my, my crappy little website at the time. And my original idea was, okay, I quit my job. So I'm just going to stay here in, in Kansas City and do my business because basically all my resources were there. But then I thought, you know, why am I staying here? I don't really like the Midwest. I'm from Tampa, Florida. So I said, screw it. I rented my house out and I packed everything up in that same trailer. And I came down to Tampa where everyone comes to die, right? Florida, everyone comes to die here. So I thought, oh, there's definitely a market here. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. (laughs) So I started the business here and I had only done two jobs in Kansas City by the time I realized that I wanted to leave. So when I came to Tampa, it's not like I lost any, any headway or anything. Got it. So you decided to come back to Tampa because you were from Tampa originally. I find it interesting, though, that you mentioned earlier that Kansas City was the meth capital. So did it offer the same types of opportunity in Tampa or how did that work out? What was the opportunity like in this new location? That's a great question, because when I started the company back in 2005, Missouri was the meth capital. Missouri is still in the top five, but Missouri still lacks any regulations or requirements for homeowners to take care of these meth labs, very similar to Florida. So we all have meth contamination in all 50 states, but there's only 23 states in the country that require decontamination. Fascinating. Were you specifically just doing meth cleanups or were there other jobs that you were taking on back in the beginning after you got that certification? Well, when I got the crime scene cleanup certification at the fourth quarter of 2005, and then I got the meth certification in the first quarter of 2006. So I was doing crime scenes first and I was doing them by myself because I couldn't afford any employees or anything. I had very little to no construction experience. So you know, this was before the YouTube days where you could actually get on YouTube and say, oh, how do I remove, you know, laminate flooring or whatever it is. So I had to figure it out. Well, then I quickly realized this is more construction intensive than I ever thought it was. So my idea was I'm going to hire some part-time guys that are experienced in this part. I'll teach them the blood part. They teach me the construction part. And then it just kept rolling from there. At that time, Again, I never thought that it would grow to what it is today. I always just assumed it would kind of be a side gig for me, something that I enjoyed doing, something that didn't bother me from 
you know, a sight or smell situation. And obviously I was used to handling and dealing with these type of families in their grief stricken times. So are you getting most of your, or at least at that time, were you getting most of your business by advertising on the internet or billboards or connections to the police academy or police force? Or where were your leads coming from for these houses that, that had need for cleanup? So at that time, I didn't have any money. Remember, I, was, I had almost exhausted all my 15000 I had left my comfort zone of Kansas City and came to Tampa, so I had no law enforcement contacts. So I got all of my work from door-to-door marketing, basically guerrilla marketing. You know, I was that person going into the apartment complexes saying, if you guys have a death here, a, an accident or a suicide or whatever, I can clean it up for you. And at the onset, they would blow me off. And I would say, listen, just take my card. You're managing, you know, 700 apartments. It's going to happen if it hasn't happened already. And two weeks later, they would call back and go, I can't believe I'm calling you. (laughs) They thought like there's this huge omen that you are spreading around. But just to be clear, I think this is really super important for our listeners. So you said you were full on literally printing your own business cards, right? You're doing the perforate it. You'd run them through the printer, perforate them, hand them out. You had no money. So you were literally going to all of the big apartment complexes, talking to the apartment managers, giving them your spiel, saying, this is what you do. You were literally in your car driving from person to person to person, getting face-to-face meetings without any money. And that's how you got your leads, right? That's so how I, I that's- absolutely had to do it. I had no alternative. And I, and I think that's honestly, looking back on it today, I think that's what made me successful because I never gave myself an option. There was no plan B. It was get out there with your perforated cards in your crappy website and start selling me. Don't worry about the collateral. Don't worry about that. You know, you don't have a snazzy website. I need to sell what I can do. And I mean, it didn't happen instantaneously, but it ended up working. That is awesome. I think that's another really good point. You weren't selling the business. You weren't selling your snazzy marketing collateral. You were selling you and what you were capable of providing for these people. So how did that business grow? Was it through lots of employees? Was it you just continuing that guerrilla marketing? What did that part of the journey? And who was doing, and who was doing the work? Was it you doing all the work or was it, or, or did you have people helping you? Well, you know, I was doing the work as well as the marketing. So what I did is I made a plan every day from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. I was going to go out and market. I was answering the phones and I was marketing at the same time. So if a job came in while I was on my route marketing, I would literally reroute myself, go get my trailer and show up at the job site and then do the job myself. Well, then we started picking up a little bit more where I actually needed some help. So I thought I can't really employ someone who needs to make a decent living because I don't have enough uh, work to be able to afford that. So my idea was to hire stay-at-home moms that they just wanted to do something during the day. They didn't necessarily need it, but they enjoyed the work or they were interested in it in some way. And that's how I started. I had two stay-at-home moms that helped me for the first couple years. Interesting. Okay. So I think we've done the kind of the, the, the spoiler already when we talk about like you eventually get to your franchise in the business. So skip ahead a little bit. How did the business grow? How did you get to the point or when did you get to the point where you said, I'm doing well, my business is doing well, Tampa's a great market, but now I'm ready to expand. What was that? What was that well, kind of that, that process? Let me back up just a little bit because there's one 
pivotal moment that happened that kind of led me to franchising. So 2005, I started, I ended up hiring the two stay-at-home moms in 2007. Well, we all can remember the recession was hitting at that point. So 2008, I was getting calls from uh, large banks that were in asset management companies that were handling foreclosures. And I did such a good job for them in Florida. They asked me if I was willing to take on other states. So ah. I decided to eventually broker it. And so I was, I was monitoring it, collecting all the information, making sure that the work got out okay. And I would add a percentage onto all of their invoices, but they were physically doing the work. So that's, that turned out great. We were doing work in all 50 states. I had like four admins that were basically shuffling all the work to different states. I mean, it was crazy. We were doing really, really well. So everyone else was losing their jobs and we actually had record years. We were tripling our income and our revenue. So I, was, I had a meeting. It was about 2012 at that point. I had a meeting with one of my attorneys and we were talking about all of the revenue that had come out of the foreclosure crisis. And he said, you know, you should franchise your business. And I said, well, I don't really know anything about franchising. And he said, you have the model. You just need to replicate it and teach it to other people. and you know, manage the process and it'll work. And I, and I, I blew him off. I really did. I blew him off. And I never really thought about it again until 2014 when I started seeing uh, some other restoration companies, which is a little kind of part of our genre, but not really franchising. And I thought, let me look into this a little more. And that's when it started. And, and the thought process started in 2014. The legal process started in 2015. And the actual first franchisee started in 2016. Got it. Okay. And so that makes sense. I mean, you kind of had an intermediate step in there. You didn't just, you were in Tampa and then you decided to expand. Basically, you were getting leads out of state and you were saying, I can't handle these leads, but I don't want to throw them away. Right. So you were farming them out, finding somebody else to do the work. You were tacking on some, some profit there for yourself. So you, you, were, you were already doing the marketing in other states. So right. you knew it could be done. And then you realized that franchising might actually be a good model a few years later. So, okay. So you decide franchising. I want to go down the franchising route. And I'm sure all of us have thought about all these companies out there that, that do franchising, million restaurants and, and lots and lots of businesses, right. everything from Chick-fil-A to Home Depot to basically anything, any decent sized business has been franchised. What's your first step? Where do you go to say, hey, I'm going to start this process of becoming the next McDonald's? That's probably where I made my first mistakes. And I made a series of mistakes and we'll talk about them. But it started out with the initial process. Okay. I thought about it. I realized, okay, I need to start looking into it. What I did was I contacted a uh, franchise consulting group that their sole job is to evaluate your business and evaluate, I say very loosely, your business and tell you what their recommendations are. For, like for, there's an option for area development. There's an option for master franchises. That's great for like food concepts, not so great for what I do. So they'll eliminate those type of things, tell you um, what states you should register in because there's certain states that require franchise registration which means a lot of legal fees and annual fees on top of that. So I contacted them. What I should have done was contact other franchisors and really hear it from the horse's mouth. So in hindsight, 
No one's going to give you better advice on franchising than somebody who's walked in those shoes. And a consulting group that just has a bunch of business gurus have not walked in those shoes. They've sat on the sidelines, they've Monday morning quarterbacked, and they've told you their advice. And then if the advice sucks, they're like, oh, well, they have nothing to lose. So that was the first of many of my mistakes. That's interesting. And it's very, it's opposite of what you would expect. You would expect that these companies out there, like that's what they do. And, but you make a good point. I I imagine just like a lot of other industries, the experts aren't necessarily the ones with the, in the trenches experience. So I I love what you said about nobody's going to give you better franchising advice than someone who's walked in those shoes. That's, that's a great piece of advice. Yeah. And you know, you got to understand too, with these franchise consulting companies, they're helping people in food, they're helping people in service and product industries. So it's a, it's very wide and it's very broad. And it was eye opening that after I hired them, you know, they send this consultant down to my office and he literally, I literally said, you know, Hey, you're looking at my business here. You're looking at everything. Do you think this is a good idea for me to franchise? And he literally said, I can't tell you that. And I'm like, those, wow. why are you here then? You know, why are you here? And then he says, well, all I can do is tell you, I don't, I don't think you should uh, do an area development or I don't think you should do a master franchise option, but I can't tell you uh, what to do. And I was like, well, what are you here for then? Did you keep him on or did you fire him? Well, you can't. So that's part of the oh. deal. So it's, it's like a multi-pronged process. So that's the first consultant that comes down and they set up the legal entities type stuff. So they engage, they help you engage with the attorney who's got to write the franchise disclosure document. And that document should cost in between 15 and $25,000 to create. Uh, Mine, of course, was 25 grand. So I'm sure they got a kickback from that. But I've seen some other franchisors on restaurant concepts that were charged over 50,000 for that. So that's another thing to look out for. That should not be that expensive. Because what these guys are doing, these lawyers, is they're taking other similar type concepts and copy and pasting and changing a few things. It should not cost that much money. Okay. So that's the, that's this first piece. That's the, it's called the franchise agreement. And what, what specifically does that lay out? What is that? What do you need that piece for? So every franchise in the United States is required to have a franchise disclosure document. We call it FDD for short. And that's a legal document that basically tells the candidate how the entity supports itself, what services you provide, if you've had any lawsuits against you, what your marketing fees and your royalties are, you know, every aspect of the business. It even goes in depth of resumes of people that are selling the franchise territory. So everybody that works for me that sells our franchises, they have a slight little resume in in a portion of that. So it goes by item numbers and it's a very lengthy document. Ours is over 240 pages. Interesting. Okay. So you have to do the franchise disclosure. Once you have that, are you ready to go out and find your first franchisee or are there other steps? No. So (laughs) that original consultant comes in and they set up how the entity should look and they, they basically collaborate with the attorney on how the FDD should be written. Well, then there's another portion. You have an operational portion as well. And the operational portion is not only how are you going to sell, but who are you going to sell to? And that is usually a big unknown because you really don't know who your target or ideal candidate is until you have some bad ones. 
and then you realize what you don't want. And that happens in every single brand. So another thing they do is they evaluate like concepts and they look at their fees and royalties because you don't want to be at 20% royalties when your competitors are at five. You want to be very similar to them to be able to compete in the marketplace. So we initially structured our royalties and fees like our competitors. We've since changed a lot of different things and we've added some different stuff to make us kind of stand out. And can you give us a little bit of an idea? So for anybody out there that's not familiar with how the franchising model works. So you're the franchisor, you create this this entity, this brand, and a franchisee, somebody comes along and says, I want this ready-made in a box system. They take it, they have your branding, they have your operations guide, they have all your intellectual property, they have these operations documents. So basically they can hit the ground running, but clearly that's not free. They're going to pay you. What does that payment look like? What does is, what is the franchisee pay to the franchisor for the rights to do all that? Yeah. So the difference between starting your own business and, st- and buying into a franchise is like you said, it's a business in a box. You're paying for someone else's um, experience and to avoid the mistakes that they made. That's the whole point of buying a franchise. You get their intellectual property, you get their assistance. You're basically assigned a, a consultant that helps you grow your business in every way possible. So that's really the difference between an, they call it an entrepreneur and a franpreneur. A franpreneur is somebody who wants to buy a business in the box. They don't want to create it from scratch like I did. And there's a lot of value in that. So what you're essentially doing is the, you're selling a, a territory to the franchisee. So that's sometimes it's protected, sometimes it's not with some brands. So they own that particular geography. Then you're charging them a royalty, which the royalty covers that consulting. It pays for you know, growth in the industry or growth in the brand. It pays for the intellectual property. It pays for the operations and all that good stuff. And then there's typically a brand fee as well. And that's for marketing and growing the brand in their particular area. And that's really the only thing that separates a franchise system from an individual small business is you own territory and you pay royalties to to the franchisor. Got it. So just to throw around, just to make up numbers, to buy a business as, as a franchisee, I might pay... 20 or 50 or 100 or $200,000 upfront one-time fee that gives me the right to open a business that can be used in a certain zip code or a certain state or a certain city, whatever it is. And then ongoing, I get the support of the franchisor. I get support of that company to help me build the business and market. And in return, I'm paying them a portion of the gross revenue as a royalty. And then I'm paying them a portion of the gross revenue as a marketing fee that they use to grow the brand, to to market the company for me and and help me with my marketing, right? Exactly. 100%. Got it. Okay. So you set all this up and now it's time to look for your first franchisee. What do you, how do you do that? Do you? (laughs) I had no idea (laughs) at the time. I really had no idea. So I, I, you know, you think you have an idea in your head of what, what type of person would want to buy into my particular industry? What, what would be a good fit? So initially, my thought process was, you know, law enforcement, firefighter, public civil servant type people that military transitioning out, and there's still great prospects, but that's not the interest that I was getting. 
I was getting a lot of disenfranchised corporate people that didn't want to work for the man anymore and they wanted to start their own company, but not necessarily invent it. They just wanted the business in the box and replicate it. So these, these, these weren't people that necessarily like grew up thinking, I, I, I want nothing more than to be a crime scene cleanup specialist. These, not at all. These were people that just wanted a business and were looking at different businesses and you provided a business that, that provided the financial, um, the, um, the financial means and stability and opportunity to get them there. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that was one of my first learning experiences too, because in hindsight, you have to be careful as a franchisor from people wanting to buy a job. And that sounds great on paper, but it's really not because they're used to getting that biweekly paycheck. They're used to checking in and being told what to do. And they're not um, self-sufficient, so to speak. They're not going to get out there and go door to door like I did. And that's the problem that we ran into when, you know, remember this was still the, the, the economy's rebounding at this point, 2015. And there's a lot of layoffs going in in the corporate world. So we're getting a lot of calls from guys that are like, hey, I just got laid off. I've got a healthy 401k. I want to buy into your brand because you guys have such high profit margins. So they're looking at it from, from the right aspect. But what they weren't taking into consideration is just because it's a franchise doesn't mean I'm going to fly to your location and do the job for you. Love that. That's huge. That's a big learning. And that sounds like that was kind of what they were expecting. That's exactly so, it. So you, you, you were going, you, you had this, this uh, thought process first that it would be law enforcement, uh, firefighters, so on and so forth. You realize it was these corporate guys. So who did that first franchisee end up becoming? Who was that person? So, you know, it was, it was ironic because Entrepreneur Magazine did a big story on us and it wasn't an ad because we couldn't afford an ad. To this day, 15 years in business, we've still never had any funding, never had a bank loan, never had any venture capital, nothing. It's all been bootstrapped. And I'll get into a little bit on that. But when that franchise consultant came in here and he said, oh, this, you know, to launch a franchise system, it's going to be $150,000. I had no idea. So I just took his word as gospel. He was way off. It was actually $450,000 to start the franchise. So once we started, you don't realize how much you're putting into it on a daily, monthly, weekly basis to keep this train going. And I quickly realized I've got to get into real estate and start wholesaling some deals because I need some big cash. And that is what I use to grow my franchise system. Always comes back to real estate. It does. <laughs> always. Awesome. It does. Every <laughs> single time. Always. Oh. That's amazing. So you threw out the number 150, 450,000. Are these typical numbers? If we have, if for any listeners out there who are thinking, I've got a small business, I'm thinking about franchising. Are those the numbers that they should be expecting to kind of get to the point where they can get started? Well, it's, it's going to be different if you're, uh, I'll say a restaurant, because you have a brick and mortar, you have uh, capital expenditures that are different than ours. For a service-based business, I would say that's, that's average. One thing, you know, that I wasn't told is you don't just hire that lawyer to, to write that franchise disclosure document. Little do you know, that person, that guy or girl is on retainer with you and you're going to be writing them checks monthly for your entire career in franchising. And it is hefty. 
you know, some of these guys are six, $700 an hour just to write a franchise agreement. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So I didn't anticipate that. So all of a sudden I'm getting all these franchise inquiries off this entrepreneur magazine article. And I'm like, Oh boy, what do I do now? You know? And he's like, well, I'll write up the agreements for you. And then I'm getting bills for twenty, thirty thousand dollars in legal fees. And I thought, Shit, I need to wholesale some houses. <laughs> We're going to go back and do some more. Yeah. That is amazing. Wow. Whoever would have thought, and you had no idea that that was, this was not disclosed to you up front. No. When you first and you know, shame this. on me. I was, it, I was very unprepared and like I said, naive to a point. So it, you know, I take full responsibility for it, but I had no idea it was going to be this expensive and this expansive as well. So I, I'm curious. So you get past the point where you actually now are legally you've legally created all your documents. You're ready to have a franchisee. You get that first franchisee. What is that process like? What are you doing? And you mentioned that it was for a lot of the franchisees, they expect you to do more handholding than they should. But in, in the perfect world, in the perfect franchise setup, what are you doing? What are you not doing? How are you helping? What are they asking for? What are you providing? You know, the, the first franchisee that I had was an absolute disaster. So it, you know, it was a disaster from the get-go and it was a giant learning experience for us. So it was an individual that self-paid, so no loans or anything like that, the, which what we were told. So, you know, come to find out the person is trying to buy their equipment and tools on Craigslist because they're trying to save money. And at that point, they were already in the system and I knew I was in trouble. I'm like, if this guy is counting pennies on buying a hammer on a garage sale, this is a problem. He's not going to be putting the money into marketing. And I was right. He refused to do anything, uh, sat on the couch, waited for the phone to ring. And after six months, I terminated him. And I thought, this is exactly what I don't want. So you, you just spent $450,000 exactly. and, and your get. first franchisee is kind yep. of gone. Yeah. So and, what were you thinking at that point? Were you like, I'm just, I'm just done and I'm just going to call it a day? Or did you just go for it again? Well, I thought I made a big mistake and I was too far into it at that point to pull away. And I thought, you know, let's, let's take this as a learning experience and hopefully turn this around. And, you know, here we are three years later and I'm still learning something every single day. And I think the most shocking thing that I've learned is that people that are buying businesses in a box literally want everything done for them. They don't want to work. They want, they just want a paycheck. Happen. They want to call themselves business owners and they just want a paycheck. And that's a problem. That's a big problem because that's not what franchising is designed to be. So how do you have, how many franchisees do you have at this point? We have 24 locations with 12 owners. So we have a lot that own multiple locations because they want to tie up that geography to avoid, you know, uh, anybody else coming in. Got it. Okay. So it sounds like and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you've sort of gotten it figured out after a few years are uh, still struggling. I, I, yeah. You know, I feel like on video, she just made, Laura just made this face. Yeah. Like, yeah, not quite. <laughs> you know, I would love to say that, that I've got a PhD in franchising right now, but honestly, I think I probably am at the associate's degree level. It's so complex. And you know, another big misconception is 
if you know your business back and forth and up and down, you can just start a fran- franchising it and teach everybody else and you're good to go. And that is completely not true because franchising is its own animal within itself. So essentially, I'm running two separate corporations. My local corporation here in Tampa that's doing the same selection of services, and then I'm teaching them the same format and, and platform to do it in their location and try to replicate that. That's not the hard part. The hard part is motivating these people to want to do better, to want to make more money, to want to leverage all of the services that we do and be the best that they can be. And is that kind of a tough pill for you to swallow, right? As the franchisor that you, you're so selective about bringing these people on and you're like, come on, let's go people. You've got every resource and every tool right here at your fingertips, but you're not using them. It's extremely Um, frustrating, not only for me, but for the staff. Like, you know, we have franchise coaches that are assigned to these people and they're giving them uh, tips and, and propaganda and formats and everything to follow. It's, it's, again, it's, it's a map to success. We've obviously done it here. We have franchisees that have done it. So you have to really look at the ones that aren't performing and go, what are you doing? Because you have to try to not be successful. So right most of them you. are getting in their own way is what I found. Get out of your way, stop overthinking things, and just follow the system. It works. Great, great. So tell me more about, you're talking about the system, all these resources, the tools that people have at their fingertips that they're not not, not necessarily using, but a big part of that is this franchise team that you've established for these franchisors. What does that team look like? Who are those team members? What are their roles? So once I realized that I was in over my head after that first franchisee, we hired a couple of consultants that have come in and they have been fantastic because they have given us other ideas on systems and formats that other franchise systems have done that we've been able to leverage and make our own. So that, that was a game changer for us. Then I hired a franchise coach that not only was a former franchisee, but also a former business owner. So who better can talk to these franchisees than somebody who's been in their shoes? So that was great. And then we have you know, several admins. We have a digital marketing consultant that handles all of their web stuff, their uh, digital advertising, you know, Google and all that good stuff. So we're, we're creating platforms for them and resources to where everything is literally at their fingertips. So back in the day, operations manuals used to be these gigantic binders that McDonald's owners or whatever would flip through and say, okay, what was that sauce that goes on a Big Mac? And that's essentially what the operations manual's for. But we've taken it up a notch. And not only do we have, you know, the paper operational manual that's searchable, we also have a video library of this is how you remove blood from tile. This is how you get bullet out of drywall. Every single thing that they could possibly ever come across, we've created a video for it. We've dummy proofed this system. That's great. So I thought. That, well, <laughs> that, that's great. You've, you've, you've basically created intellectual property that will allow yes. your franchise to stand out from the other franchises. So correct in, in, in your world, presumably it's like McDonald's and Burger King and Wendy's. There's all these different places that have slight variations. If somebody's going to decide, I want to go into crime scene cleanup and I have to choose between Spalding Decon and one of your competitors. Now there's this competitive advantage that your competitors don't have all the, the this intellectual property, this education. So that, right. that that's great. 
So tell me, what do you do on a typical day? What is your role in the business? You have somebody that's out there talking to the franchisees. Presumably you have some people that are doing training and, and the admins. What's your role as the head of the franchise? Well, my, I've moved into the development spot. So what I'm doing is I'm interviewing candidates and I'm vetting them to see if they're a good fit for our system. And because, you know, I feel like I'm, I could have delegated that off and it, and it probably would have been fine. But here's where the control comes in. If you're delegating it off to a sales rep, they're pay, typically paid a commission. So you have a, um, a, you know, a, a relationship there that could be counterproductive. You have somebody that wants to get people in because their commission goes up and they might overlook some stuff that shouldn't be overlooked. So I decided to take that role myself at, because it ultimately falls on me when we get a bad candidate. And I am just as guilty as another sales rep of either not vetting someone properly or maybe believing things that I was told that weren't necessarily true. And every single franchisor goes through this. We all have terminations of people that just don't fit within the brand. And every single franchise system has a brand culture. For example, Chick-fil-A is a big one. If, you know, there's tons of people that want to own a Chick-fil-A, but can you walk the walk? They're very strict on like their religious requirements and other things that's not necessarily going to fit for everyone. So if you really want to own a chicken place, you might want to look at a different restaurant that doesn't have that type of brand responsibilities. Great. And it sounds like, I think that's a really important one too, like really, really taking all those considerations about the different cultures, aspects of the, of the franchise. It sounds like it doesn't sound, is there some importance on both sides of the coin as far as franchisor and franchisee in doing a certain amount of due diligence to make sure that it's a right fit? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the due diligence falls on both sides. So, you know, I, I find a lot of franchise candidates that they'll say, listen, I really just want to buy into this. And it's like, no, that's not how it works. You're not buying a car. You can go in and buy any car. We need to make sure that you're a good fit for us and we're a good fit for you. What are your long-term goals? Where do you see this going? And how do you plan on operating this system? Because, it, you know, I, I always get scared when they say, oh, I'm just going to hire somebody to do it. No, no, no. Again, <laughs> unless you have millions and millions in the bank, which you shouldn't be buying a franchise anyway if you do, why are you hiring somebody to run your life? You know, and we've had that before. We've told people we don't allow absentee owners. It's just against our brand. We don't do it. Other people do it and that's fine. But we have found when the owner is not involved, they are the quickest to fail. Interesting. So, uh are, do you typically look for a certain type of background or a certain type of business experience? Like what is your ideal candidate? Let's say, let's get past the, the motivation and willingness to work hard and they have the money for it. From a personality and experience standpoint, what is, what's an ideal candidate for your type of business? You know, we, for our particular brand, I think the perfect candidate is a veteran. They are very mission-based they're very focused. They're, you give them, you know, you give them the ball and you tell them where to go and they're going to do it because that's the way they've lived their lives. And it's the same with any franchise system. You're giving them the recipe playbook and you're telling them, listen, just follow it. It works. I promise it works. Just follow it. 
you have to be careful from the people that score high on the entrepreneur. There's a personality test uh, for franchisors and people that are high entrepreneur like myself, I would not make a good franchisee because I'm constantly thinking of how can I change the system to make it better? That's not my job. My job is to follow it as a franchisee. I'm not here to create and change it. Remember we talked about the entrepreneur and franpreneur? That's the difference. That's great. I, I love that because I, I think there are a lot of people out there that think, I want to be an entrepreneur and maybe from a, I don't want to do the marketing or I'm not good at marketing or I'm not right. building the systems. This is right, but it sounds like it's not just the marketing or the ability to implement systems. It's also this ability to, to relinquish control because an entrepreneur you have ultimate control. As a franchisee, you actually have relatively little control, but right. in, in a way that in, in theory can help you a whole bunch if you can follow the rules. Right. And you'd be surprised how many people have difficulty following the system or following the playbook. And, you know, we're not asking for the perfect person. You're never going to find anybody that's fantastic at operations, but also great at marketing and great at, say, HR. What, we, what I tell people is, what are your strengths? Because I need you to hire your weaknesses. You're just going to hire a weakness. And if you're not properly capitalized, that is the number one reason franchisees fail. They're not properly capitalized. Excellent. That's super. So what's next, Laura? What are your next plans for growth? What's coming down the pipeline? You know, we introduced the real estate component into our services back in 2016 when we started. And it's been a game changer for us because our franchisees are wholesaling these homes that have had, you know, afflictions of whatever. And they're getting quite a bit of capital that they're putting back into their business to grow their business, whether it's buying new territories or adding trucks or whatnot. So leveraging the real estate portion has been great. Uh, unfortunately, I, we, we don't have every single franchisee that's comfortable enough to do it in the system, but we're really pushing that because, again, I would not be here if it wasn't for me wholesaling all those houses to get the capital that I needed for that gap that I was missing. That's great. So ba basically, the business is a, a great marketing tool for the real estate side, and the real estate side yeah. is a great marketing tool for the business. It's just absolutely it, it works so well together. It does. It, it, it does. And it, it, the only thing I'm mad about is it took me, you know, till 2016 to figure that out. <laughs> awesome. Well, this has been fantastic. I could ask questions for like another 10 hours, but we need to get into the final segment of the show so we don't go too long. And that is called the four more. And that is where we ask you four questions that we ask all of our guests. And then we give you an opportunity to tell us a little bit more about where our listeners can find out more about your business and connect with you. How's that sound? Yeah, it sounds great. Awesome. Okay. And I'm going to ask the first question. What is the first or the worst job you've ever had? You know, my, my first job was I was, uh, my parents had got a brand new lawnmower. I was 11 years old and it was the new uh, Honda self-propelled, you know, where you didn't have to break your back pushing it. And I asked my dad if I could go around the neighborhood mowing other people's lawns and he kind of blew, yeah, sure, you know, whatever, as long as you pay for the gas and mow my lawn. And I said, okay, well, it turned out that I was making like two, $300 a month as an 11 year old mowing these lawns. So he, he cut me off <laughs> and uh, he said that was too much money for, for an 11 year old. So that was my first job. And uh, <laughs> ironically, I was charging a uh, 
$20 a lawn back then, you know, that was, I was 11. So that was 30 some years ago. And the price for that type of business has not changed. So I would say the barrier of entry is extremely low on that. And I would advise against a franchise in that. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. Okay. Here's your second question, Laura. I would like to know, what is the defining moment when you realized you truly had an entrepreneurial itch? You know, it was right after that when my dad cut me off from mowing lawns. I was taking all of my Christmas and birthday presents to school and I was reselling them to my friends. And uh, when we would go to, uh, to Sam's Club, Sam's Club was like just starting back then, I would buy the big container of blow pops and I would sell them for a quarter to all my friends. And then I got in trouble for that. So I had to do it in the parking lot. And I knew that I was always going to do something for myself because I was constantly wheeling and dealing. And you are so not a rule follower. Oh, no. You're like, I'm just, whatever someone tells me to do, I'm just doing the total opposite and I'm running this Yeah, just for the record, I think I've been fired from every single job. So I really had no other option but to do this. So (laughs) I I think that that describes a lot of entrepreneurs. We're we're, we're entrepreneurs because we're unemployable. Yeah, I'm unemployable, no doubt. Yeah. Awesome. Do you read books? Oh, lots. Excellent. Lots. Okay, then that we, we we change up question number three every once in a while, but that's my favorite question. What's the best okay. book you've read recently that that you would recommend to our listeners? You know, the best one that I've read recently, and it's probably going to end up being my top five ever, and I don't know if you've read it, but it's David Goggins' Can't Hurt Me. Yeah, I love, uh, that, I love that. That was a game changer for me. I really, really liked it. I grew up in kind of somewhat similar uh, as he did in the past. So it mindset has always been very big to me. And I read it at the exact right time that I need it. I feel like these books come to me at the right time. And I was able to just kind of, you know, improvise and overcome and just kind of get through it. Awesome. Okay, here's the fourth in my personal favorite question. <laughs> what is something that you have splurged on in your personal or professional life somewhere along the way that was totally worth it? You know, I'm not a big stuff person. I'm actually quite a minimalist. If you see my house, it has like nothing in it. We do a lot of hoarding cleanup, so I'm trying to be the antithesis of hoarding. So I, you know, I'm a big on experiences, and I think one of the big splurges I did was a two-week vacation in New Zealand. It was incredible. Wow. And I traveled through the, the entire country and you know, got to go to a rugby game and zip lining and just a, a great experience. And I, I really, really enjoyed it. And that was a very expensive, but very worth it. Awesome. That is so cool. <laughs> yeah. And that is, just like you said, that is so common of entrepreneurs. We, we don't value the stuff. Yeah. None of us have anything in our houses. Nah. We just want that those awesome memories. Yeah, totally. Okay. I'm a man of my word. And so I I need to be careful that I didn't lie to our listeners here, but we (laughs) promised them early on that they would get some good crime scene cleanup stories. So before before we jump to the more part of the four more, can you give us your top one or two or three, I don't know if favorite's (laughs) the right word, but, but most interesting, let's use most interesting crime scene cleanup stories. Um, some of them are very sad. Other ones are interesting. So one of them I I remember was it was the longest human decomposition we've ever had. And it was a man that he had all his bills on bill pay and he had his mail sent somewhere else. And he died in his home in the living room on the futon 
and no one found him for nine months. (gasps) And he literally melted through the futon, through the beautiful oak floors and into the crawl space below it. So that was the longest decomposition we've ever had. And there was very little left. Everybody's like, oh, I bet that was the worst smell. It actually wasn't because it had been so long that most of it just kind of decomposed. Oh, oh, I know. I I remember (laughs) I first found you when I saw a video that you posted on Facebook and I've never been able to watch the video because it's bothersome. (laughs) You you titled, and and this is for anybody out there um, that wants wants to to hear some more of your stories. Um, You you post some of your your stories, videos uh, publicly on Facebook, on on, uh, YouTube. You posted a video called The Exploding Esophagus. Yes. And I haven't been able to watch that because I have acid reflux and it just scares me to even think about it. But what was that story? You know, that was, he actually lived. So this was a, uh, a guy that worked for a service type company. He was, he was driving his service vehicle, his truck, and he was just having some major acid reflux and he kind of left it unattended as many men do. They don't want to go to the doctor. And all of a sudden he just started throwing up massive amounts of blood everywhere, had to pull over and they pulled him out and they got him into the hospital. But, you know, there must have been three to four pints of (gasps) blood in there and it looked like he lost his entire throat and it just came out through his, through his mouth. But, um, yeah, that was a that was a bloody one to say the least. I, I, so I, I made the right choice not watching that. I don't know about that. And, and, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like it was so cool. Yeah, it was so cool. Yeah, it was very uh, cool. Oh uh, well, thank you. I, I'm going to stop there at those two stories. But I, I'm sure anybody that wants to find out more, well, let's tell them where they can learn more about you, where they can learn more about Spalding Decon, where they can watch your YouTube videos, and where they can connect with you if they want to connect with you. Yeah, we're getting ready to uh, launch season three this Thursday on our YouTube reality series. It's uh, completely uncensored. So you can go to uh, YouTube and type in crime scene cleaning. And it's again, it's uncensored, not for the week. We also have a uh, exclusive season and a podcast on Patreon. It's also under crime scene cleaning. And uh, we have a cult-like following on Instagram, uh, over 360,000 uh, people following us wow. on Instagram in, in just a short year Wow! Uh, there. And it, that's also under crime scene cleaning. And we really kind of go into more of the stories there. People seem to love the stories more than they do, or maybe as equal as the gore, because everyone has a curiosity, a morbid curiosity on, you know, how do other people live? What do they go through? You know, you want to walk a mile in other people's shoes. And we really take a non-judgmental component to it. We don't, we don't want any judgment because, you know, you don't live in their shoes. Certainly. Wow. This has been an eye-opening discussion, not just from the, <laughs> obviously from the business and the franchising standpoint, but just from the business <laughs> standpoint, the type of business you're in. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for sharing all that. And I will try to go watch some of those, <laughs> those stories. <laughs> and I highly recommend anybody that uh, has a not-so-weak stomach as I do uh, to go check that out. So Laura, thank you. It's my pleasure. Yeah, we really appreciate this. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. So many great tips. So much great just sharing of all your expertise and knowledge. And we appreciate it so much. Thanks Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Talk to you soon. 
So my absolute favorite part about that whole episode is how prescient it was. Just the fact that when we recorded it six weeks ago, we had no idea that this whole coronavirus thing was going to happen. And now Lara's company is literally one of the biggest companies in the country dealing with coronavirus cleanup. She's been in the Wall Street Journal. She's been in various magazines, various newspapers. I mean, she's just taken off since we recorded this just a few weeks ago. And just another just congratulations to Lara on Entrepreneur Magazine Top 10 Best New Franchises. Just absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's totally cool. And I just love that she is so incredibly real, right? She's as transparent as they get. She just shows with a lot of hard work and grit, you can make something happen. And I'll tell you what, with her amazing YouTube channel, she is absolutely brilliant. She's just developed a cult-like following through that medium as well, in addition to all this other amazing press that she's received very well-deservedly so. So kudos to you, Laura. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you if you like the, the gruesome stuff, even the not so gruesome stuff, I, I love her YouTube channel. So everybody really needs to go check out that YouTube channel. It's really awesome. Alrighty. Well, I hope everybody is hanging in there, not going too stir crazy in their in their lockdowns these days. Everybody stay, uh, stay healthy, stay safe, have a wonderful week, and we will see you again next week. She's Carol. And I guess I'm Jay. <laughs> Do not wait another minute. Get out there, people. Be a business owner today. Have a good one. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.